Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of uh, Hebrews. <clears throat> and we're going to be taking a look at chapter 10, which uh, is kind of in the middle of his argument. It's going to be the hard thing for us. I was just lamenting that with some of the folks gathered here. It's kind of a hard thing because, like all the biblical texts, it's meant to be read in one setting, and there's kind of a lengthy argument. So undoubtedly, we're going to have some distortion here because we're taking this argument in chunks and segments over a course of weeks. We'll do the best we can to mitigate that. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, the pastoral occasion is really important to keep in mind in this section, because then we're not going to lose the forest for the trees, and we're going to remember why he's making his argument, the superiority of Christ uh, to the and the new covenant to the old covenant, superiority of Christ to Moses, the superiority of Christ as high priest after the order of Melchizedek to the high priest of the Levites, the superiority of Christ's sacrifice of himself, his own body given, his own blood shed, over and against those of the animal sacrifices. That's essentially what we've done. But we do want to backtrack. Uh, just, if nothing else, flip backward in your Bible to chapter 8. And all the way back in chapter 8, you're going to see an introduction. This is one of the things that the author of Hebrews likes to do. Um, he weaves scriptures together, kind of a, like bringing up a scripture, addressing it, bringing up another scripture, addressing that, maybe even a third and addressing that, and then taking you back to the first, and then taking you back to the second. So he's constantly doing this kind of looping, weaving thing. Back here at uh, chapter 8, we have, uh, starting at verse 8, this introduction of uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and that's going to come up again. So I just want to, I just want you to once again kind of visualize that this is uh, several chapters ago is where he starts to introduce the themes that he's again talking about today. It's a long, cohesive argument. It probably makes the most sense to just read it start to finish in one sweeping pattern. We can't help but distort it as we study it over the course of weeks. All right, there's my caveat, my giant asterisk, as it were. So as we flip then, um, just if you want to flip forward to kind of remind yourself, it's just this contrast between the earthly and the heavenly, the old covenant and the new, the blood of animals, the blood of Christ, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant being able to cleanse the body or the flesh, the New Covenant or Testament being able to cleanse or purify the conscience, a right conscience before God. So that's been essentially the exercise. Now, as we go into chapter 10, uh, we're going to have a quotation and some work on Psalm 40, that's going to prove uh, very important, and again, kind of one of these looping patterns. But look again at chapter 10, verse 16. We're just looking a little bit ahead of ourselves, and what do we see there? Once more with 
Jeremiah 31. So you can see this pattern he has of weaving these themes back and forth. And it's really kind of an effective way because it, it creates for some crescendo and uh, some beauty and art in his presentation. All right, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Now, what is meant here by law? The whole Old Covenant, yeah, including its earthly tabernacle and temple made with hands, its animal sacrifices, all the rest. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near, or bring to completion or consummation those who draw near. You can see the analogy that's being worked is um, the tabernacle is itself a shadow of the heavenly reality, so the sacrifices themselves, the animal sacrifice, are shadows of the heavenly reality, which is going to be the blood that Christ brings um, into the temple of God. So these same sacrifices offered every year, and probably with the every year in view here is Yom Kippur, uh, where they do enter the holiest of holies with the blood of the Lamb poured out on the mercy seat. But these cannot, can never make perfect, uh, make consummate or complete those who draw near. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So the argument here is like, well, if the blood of bulls and goats could in fact cleanse the conscience, make right the human heart, then you should be able to find a point in which that stops and it's accomplished its task. But that's not the case. The Old Testament, by its very nature, is cyclical, repeated, ongoing. And he's going to contrast that, of course, with the sacrifice of Christ that does perfect or cleanse the conscience. That is to say, it's one sacrifice to which we always turn. So here's the point of contrast. You don't, as a Hebrew person, you don't go, okay, well, the lamb that was sacrificed for me last day of atonement, last Yom, Yom Kippur, that covered all my sins, so I'm done, I'm good. No, you need another lamb for this year. And you get through that, and you don't go, okay, well, that lamb was it, I'm done, I'm covered, I'm good. No, you need a, another lamb, you see. So it's not as though, it's not as though it's completely inept at affecting the conscience or affecting this idea in someone's head that God, you know, has granted them forgiveness. But it's that it need, that it's so weak that it constantly needs to, needs to be repeated. Now, Christ's sacrifice is going to be that which cleanses our conscience and perfects us and is consummate because it's always that to which we return. And in fact, the essence of Christian faith, I mean, to be a Christian, is to be linked to that, period. That's what faith is. It's to be linked to the sacrifice of Christ by which our sins are atoned. So in that sense, it doesn't fluctuate. Now, our experience of our conscience does, going from a good conscience, a right conscience, to a bad or defiled conscience. But it's not to a new sacrifice that we turn, it's to the sacrifice made once and for all. So we can compare and contrast these elements. But again, what's the pastoral, pastoral task of the author of the Hebrews? He's saying to them, don't return to Judaism. This was a kind of 
inferiority, an inferior arrangement to that which we have been given in Christ. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. So, as the sacrifice has to repeat, we're reminded that we have ongoing sins, and those sins have to be dealt with. And then we'll have more sins, and they have to be dealt with again. And it's this ongoing kind of treadmill of sin and forgiveness and sin and forgiveness. That's contrasted with the sacrifice of Christ made once and for all. There's no treadmill. There's no new sacrifice be, uh, necessary. We're going to see where all this is driving if you want to read the last line of the book, so to speak. Um, cut to the chase. If you look at verse 18, you'll see where he's going. Where there is forgiveness of these, that is forgiveness of sin, forgiveness of lawless deeds, then there is no longer any offering for sin. So that's where he's going. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is so far superior to the Old Testament sacrifices that it needs never be repeated. All right, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I think we can understand that in two ways. First of all, even, even then, the forgiveness of sins is rendered by Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, and that would include not only present tense, but future tense, our sins. Not only present and future tense, but also past tense, the sins of everyone before. So, the sins of the Old Testament saints and the sins of the New Testament saints are, properly speaking, covered by the blood of Jesus. Period. Now, the Old Testament sacrifices can be said to forgive sins, as in Leviticus, you read this. Why? Because they are effectively communicating the forgiveness of sins won by Christ Jesus. We're speaking achronologically here. The forgiveness of sins won by Christ Jesus is what they're communicating. So do they forgive sins in and of themselves? No. That's the author of Hebrews' points. Do, do they forgive sins because they communicate the forgiveness and redemption that we will all have in the Messiah? Looking forward. Yes, that's Leviticus' point. See how that works? We do the same thing, by the way, with baptism uh, and with uh, the Lord's Supper. Does baptism save? Well, it saves because it connects us with Christ Jesus and unites us in his death and resurrection. So, yes, it saves. But does baptism itself save, such that we wouldn't even need faith, for example? No. Unbelief condemns. So, does baptism save or not? Well, yes, and that's the way the scriptures speak, and yet we can think of ways in which it doesn't save. St. Paul warns of this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, hey, just as the Old Testament people were baptized in the Red Sea, so also you're baptized, just as they ate the spiritual food, the manna, and drank from the spiritual rock, Christ, so also you have eaten the manna from heaven, Christ himself, and drank from the spiritual rock that has consumed his blood. But just as you have been baptized in communion, they were baptized in communion, they apostatized in the wilderness and were punished. These things were written so that you would not likewise apostatize and be 
punished. So even there, you can see what Paul's argument is, is, hey, baptism doesn't save in the sense that once you're baptized, you can apostatize and just claim your baptism. So in that sense, baptism doesn't save. Now the fancy term for this from the uh, medieval period, from the Reformation period, is ex opera operato. It's by the working of the work itself. And you can kind of think of this as, some people have this idea, I think it's more prevalent in some Roman Catholic circles, that I'm baptized, and that's my golden ticket. As long as I'm baptized, I'm in. Now I don't ever need to go to church again or anything else. And even uh, even more apparent is um, the working out of ex opera operato in something like the Roman Catholic so-called sacrifice of the Mass. Because there is a re-sacrifice or a re-presentation of the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood. And so it goes like this. I can live however I want as long as the Mass is said for me on my behalf. Now this actually has an Old Testament parallel. And we're going to see that. Um, but you can think even of like Psalm 51 where it says that you know, God does not require, uh, God does not desire sacrifice, but a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But how is it that God cannot desire sacrifice when God's the one that commanded sacrifice? Well, the, the tension is resolved when you realize that this is how the Old Testament people are thinking. I can live however I want as long as I kill a bull or sacrifice a goat. I'm good. Yahweh's good. I'm good. He likes, he likes sacrifices. I like sinning. Match made in heaven. Uh, and then that's where, that's where the prophets start, God starts speaking through the prophets saying, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your righteousness. I don't want your sacrifice. I want your repentance. I don't want your sacrifice. I want you to do my will. Okay. So that's, um, that's definitely going on there. And then likewise, Paul, as I quoted in 1 Corinthians 10, is doing the same thing to the first century Christians in Corinth. He's saying, Look, you can't, you can't apostatize and live as pagans and claim your baptism. Like, God is not mocked. Okay. So, or, or just go to communion. God is not mocked. So we see this ex opera, operato tendency, this, and that technically means by the working of the work itself, as if it were a, golden ticket or a magical spell or some sort of guarantee that completely apart from faith or a good conscience or a desire to live rightly, complete, completely apart from conversion or the presence of the Holy Spirit, you just make this dry, crusty transaction. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. What do I owe you, God? Okay, here, you're paid off. Now let me go do what I want to do again. That's not Christianity. That's not a living relationship with the living God. That's to be dead and to be deeply self-deceived. Okay, so all of that background is in view as we start to approach what comes next. So again, verse 4, important for us to understand. It can be a tricky verse if you don't kind of get the background. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now quoting Psalm 40, and interesting, it's Christ coming into the world and speaking this psalm. I mean, it's marvelous and wonderful to consider the implications of this. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, so the Son says to the Father, but a body 
you have prepared for me. So what's the first level contrast? The first level contrast here isn't so much ex opera operato, it's that all the sacrifices and offerings that you instituted as part of the first covenant are not in fact your deepest and true desire. They're not the fulfillment of your desire. But you have given me a body. That sacrifice that I will make through my body is the sacrifice which you have desired. This becomes apparent in verse 10, if you want to flash forward to that. Um, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So you can see where he's going in quoting this first part of Psalm 40. It's Psalm 40, uh, yeah, it's Psalm 40 verse 6, I think, but here it's chapter 10 of Hebrews verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So you can see the contrast between just offering sacrifices as a payment for sin, as if it were some dry transaction, versus Christ who has come to actually perform the will of the Father, which is what the whole first covenant wants. That you would live in according to my will, and when you fail, there is forgiveness of sins communicated to you through these sacrifices. Okay. But we see that Israel's entire history, history is an apostasy against this covenant, a refusal to do God's will, and a desire to abuse the sacraments in order to uh, just get by. So Christ comes and says, I desire to do your will. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, perfectly, to fulfill the first covenant, to not do any ex operato. And that will, coincidentally or not, happens to be to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice, to offer his body. Okay, so this is the way the author of Hebrews is interpreting Psalm 40, as we shall see. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Christ has come to do the perfect will of God, which includes sacrificing himself for the sins of the world. Verse 8, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So he does away with the first covenant with its sacrifices in order to establish the second covenant, the new covenant, with his sacrifice. So once more, 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, that, those two verses tie up what's introduced. You can see what's introduced in, cha- in verse 5 of chapter 10. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now it's the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Then down in verse 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That takes us back to the first part of verse 10. And by that will... The will that he has performed, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So that will. And that will of God, again, is, I think, I think what's really being expressed here is love. And I'll show you why I think that. So the love of God in Christ Jesus, this will, the perfect will of Christ is to love God and love man. And that manifests itself precisely in its consummate form in its complete or perfect form in his in the sacrifice of his body on the cross because that really is the essence of the first covenant love the lord your god with all your heart mind strength soul love your neighbor as your self the two tables of the law so to love god and love neighbor is the essence and christ does so so perfectly he needs no offering of sin for himself he fulfills that perfectly but the consummation, the perfection of that love for God and man is precisely that he offers his body for the sins of the world, reconciling God and man. Make sense? All right, I think that's his point. Any questions or anything you see that I didn't mention? One second, let's get you a microphone. When Jesus talks about uh, death and the ending of the of the promise, so a woman, if her husband dies, um, she can remarry and she's not committing adultery because he's dead. Mm-hmm. So is that the same analogy he's using here? Because they're going to kill him, technically. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, well, since you killed the... The sheep, that covenant is gone, and it's the new one that's coming into being. Yeah, I don't see that. I don't see that argument precisely being made here. But your argument's right, and I think is used elsewhere. I, I can't remember if Paul uses that in Galatians or where exactly he uses that. So it is a biblical argument. It is right and true. I don't think that that's what it, he's after. Something parallel for sure. Yeah, um, but I don't think that's precisely what he's up to. I've wondered about this more recently. Um, my children have been taught the small catechism. They've you know, sat in front of teachers that presented the word. Mm-hmm. I really don't believe there is any attention as adult people now to understanding all of the, all that you have just presented in the last half hour. In any of them. I mean, we, we don't discuss it as a family, yeah. 
but uh, is it, it just seems like we have a, a lot of Christians that have watered down. There is there's no essence in their lives about this book. Well, so I, that's, that's a good observation. A couple of things. We're gonna, we're gonna see the author of Hebrews actually address that a little already in the first century Christian community. So here we are 20 centuries later dealing with some of the same problems. But I think what you articulated is why this text is very important for us as Christians here at the present time, lest we apostatize. Now, our temptation isn't to return to Judaism, but our, our temptation is precisely to turn into the way of the world and to just forsake God and forsake his covenant and forsake the study of his word and the doing of his will to forsake all of this and just take the easy, struggle-free Orange County life and, you know, and to turn our backs on Christ. So the, uh, yeah, I think the author of Hebrews speaks to us, even though it's in different terms, he's calling us to be wary of any kind of apostasy that would lead us away from these central things. And of course, unfortunately, we see it generationally and we can see it in our children, our children's children, but um, we need to make sure that we ourselves are accountable to God. We can't be accountable, strictly speaking, for people who do turn their back on him. And then we can carry forth his light and proclaim the, the glory of Christ. Yes, that's a great question. Yeah, a question we all have is, um, uh, yeah, and unfortunately we kind of abuse this question too, but like what's the bare minimum faith required to get in? And we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but what if, what if Christians do forsake gathering together and forsake the church and forsake the sacraments and forsake Christ and forsake the knowledge of God and, and then forsake living because you can't, you can't be a fruitful living vine cut off from the branch. And so all of this is kind of of a piece. Now, what we, what we see and what we question is we know that God can save by grace alone through faith alone apart from works. And we know that the Holy Spirit can sustain faith impossibly in the most unlikely of circumstances. So it is our hope and our prayer that they remain in the faith and we plead the mercy of God on their behalf. We intercede before, for them, before God, reminding God that he says a smoldering wick he will not put out, a broken reed or bruised reed he will not break off. Um, but ultimately we do have to sorrow with God and put ourselves on God's side. God is gracious. He loves them, desires all men to be saved. And if men will have it not, you know, do I feel worse for, you know, my family member who's apostatized? Or do I feel worse because I see God's extreme love and mercy toward them rejected? The older I get, and maybe this is my own personal issue, <laughs> the older I get, the more I find myself sympathizing, this is kind of a wrong way to speak, but sympathizing with God, not with the person who's rejecting God. I mean, I sympathize with them to an extent, but and I'll do what I can to reach out to them with the gospel, but far be it from me to think of God as 
harsh and distant and aloof and just waiting for that last spark to burn out so that he can toss them into hell. That's not God at all. God is um, calling them and seeking them and, and doing everything he can to get to the gospel into their ears. If they reject that and despise that and run and flee away, to, even to the point where they're just kind of jerks about it, um, I pray that by the skin of their teeth they'd be saved. But I commend that into God's hands, who's infinitely more gracious than me, and is pursuing them in ways I can't even fathom. But I find myself trusting him and sympathizing with him and being a little bit irritated with the ones who have fled away. You know. Now, I understand there's not arrogance there because I understand that I myself could flee away and I understand that, you know, this is, there's a miracle and a mystery involved here and how God, why some and not others. So I'm not going to, not speaking from a position of arrogance, right? Um, but Paul talks this way. I think I'm on safe ground because Paul talks this way in Romans where he's like, look, they're without excuse. Everybody's without excuse. Everybody knows who God is. Everybody flees away from him. God comes calling through the good shepherd seeking the lost sheep. Um, many are called, few are chosen. Many reject him. Many reject his call. Uh, what of that? Am I to shake my fist at God? I, I can't do that anymore. Uh, I, I just see his action and his loving fatherly and shepherding hand too clearly. I get, if I'm going to be irritated, I'm going to be irritated with those that continue to flee from him. So, anyway, just some thoughts there. But. It comes down to knowledge. I mean, to me, this is elaborating on God's intervention with mankind, it's a fine-tuning of uh, people, yeah. Yeah. knowing what he desires of us. Right. This is a, yeah, this is, in a sense, this is his gift to us, and this is what we have to realize. I think the battle we have to fight as Americans is we don't need it to have some sort of very concrete, practical utility for it to be wonderful. And even if we can't run out and immediately apply this word of God to some situation in our lives or some neighbor of ours that's going to have an effect, we need to realize that God has blessed us with his word and spirit to sit and dwell and think on these things and marvel on his, at his goodness and realize that what we're entertaining ourselves with, entertaining ourselves with right now, is, uh, is the most priceless treasure this world has. The word of God is so much more valuable than the heavens and the earth that even they will all pass away, but this word will abide and remain. And Christ has given us this opportunity. He's given it to us, and then now he's called us by his spirit to study it and enjoy it. And so I think we have to just also give thanks to God and just simply thank him that we are here, plead with him to have mercy on those who are not gathered to his church. And the newest grandchild, my God, is he's what, three weeks old? to be baptized soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I, I mean, it's not that this youngster will not, this is a baby, he will not have the opportunity to understand the depth of this. This is one of the crosses we bear, and we, I should probably talk more about it. We should all talk more about it. This, we live in, the, in an age that, I mean, it, I don't know that I've ever read or heard anybody say this, but in my mind, it's just, it's already solidified. I already think internally like this, that we are living in the great apostasy, the, the great turning away of the West. And it's been going on for a generation or two. But it's, it's just, it, it is what it is. It's the disintegration and apostasy of the West as everybody turns away from the church. Uh, I think that this is where the language of unchurched comes from or whatever. But uh, what our cross is to bear is we, we, have, we can have survivor's guilt. <laughs> 
because we're here and so many others in our families aren't. Um, but we, we, but we also bear a great cross because we just, we don't understand why they're falling away, especially when we've seen ourselves every bit as rebellious, but God has called us and held us firm. We have to bear the cross of our children not doing what we've raised them to do with our grandchildren reaping the bad fruit of that. And this is, this is, um, this is suffering and a cross and affliction that we have to bear in faith. And here's where I find myself again, kind of like, Allying myself with God. He's bearing that same kind of agony and pain, um, as a father seeking his lost, uh, creation, his lost, you know, those whom he would make children in the waters of holy baptism, those who he would adopt and bring home, and they, they will not have it. Christ, remember, uh, on the way to Jerusalem, um, you know, you've got all the little children screaming, waving their palm branches, everybody's having a good time, and I think it's Luke tells us Jesus himself is, weeping. And at one point he says, um, how, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. I mean, the most tender little image you can think of, right? But you would not have it. And that's a cross that Christ continues to bear as the world will not have it. And as we as Christians experience the same thing, we bear that cross with him. Please. I just wanted to comment on the clarity that uh, these verses have helped me with it's uh, you know the disconnect I've always had with Christ's obedience he fulfilled perfectly the obedience I should have and it says it here I think in verse 7 that he came to do the will of God and uh, that's also a gift to me because that allows the it seems like you were saying here that that allows then the book on the old testament old covenant to be closed and that perfectly closes that off. And then his sacrificial death and shedding his blood for my sin. So perfect obedience and uh, shed blood, dying in my place substitutionally. I, I never saw the connection, but these verses put it together so that I see it closes the book uh, on the Old Testament uh, or the Old Covenant. Yeah. So ah, it's a great reflection you had. Thank you. And you stated it with so much clarity. Okay, yeah. okay. so I, I just thank you for Yeah, yeah, you really see it. I mean, he is saying it's done. Like, so again, to his first century congregation, there's nothing to return to. It's, it's empty at this point. It's devoid at this point. Um, the old covenant is, is closed. The new has come. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, we're gonna keep in mind now this, especially this business about the will of God. I have come to do your will, which is to embody the old covenant in such a way that it is commensurate or consummate rather in the cross. Perfect love for God, perfect love for man. Okay, but this will is what he has within him. And uh, that that is different than anything that has come before. And now we're gonna now the author of Hebrews is gonna take us into Jeremiah 31 with that view of the will of Christ, and then reading Jer- what Jeremiah says is going to happen to us. All right, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
He sat down at the right hand of God. It's kind of funny because this is an ongoing reality where the priests are still standing, offering, doing, and Christ has done it. It's finished and he's sitting. <laughs> it's great. It's great. So, yeah, but when Christ had offered for all time. Now, again, here, I don't think we need to be, we, we don't need this to prove our point. We're not doing proof text, but it accords with our point. Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins. If you needed a proof text for Christ's atoning sacrifice being for the Old Testament saints, all the way back to Moses and Abraham and before that to Adam and Eve, here you go. Here it is. It's one offering for all time. A single sacrifice for sins. This is the cross happens, let's say the cross happens in 33 AD, okay? Every sin before that, every sin after that, every sin at that time is cleansed by his blood. It is a, it is an offering for all time of a single sacrifice for sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So this would be in the fulfillment of the Psalms. Um, I don't see a specific reference there. But in, uh, this is in fulfillment of the imagery, language and imagery of the Psalms. We've already, like everything has already been subjected to him, but we do not yet see it with our eyes. Remember that part from earlier in Hebrews? So we're waiting until this is, not, not only are they under his feet, but his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Now, I mean, you have to take this. So imagine being a, being, just imagine being a king of a country. And there's another country that's been really nasty and antagonizing you and capturing and torturing your people. And so you, enough's enough. And you go over and you, you wipe them out so that your people aren't being, you know, destroyed anymore by this wicked king and this wicked, but you capture the king alive. And you don't want to put him to death. You don't want to torture him per se. How are you going to embarrass him, shame him, and make sure that no other king out there messes with your people ever again? You make him your living footstool. <laughs> so you sit up on your throne and you say, over here, you know, so-and-so the great, whatever your name is, and he has to come over on his hands and knees and you kick up your feet on top of him. And you say, ah, this is the life. So that's the imagery of how glorious Christ's def defeat of the enemies are and also his humiliation of them. Now this is going to be something that we we almost can't glory in it too much right now because of the sinful nature. But this is going to be fantastic because as much as the devil and his minions have heaped shame upon us and made us feel ashamed, that's not going to stand. We're going to be conquerors of those very things. And he himself who tried to overcome us is going to be shamed. And he's going to be the footstool of Christ and we're going to be enthroned and reigning with him. So what does that mean? He'll be our footstool as well. There's going to be a great reversal there. It's going to be very sweet. But like I said, we probably can't meditate on it too much because the sinful nature is a little imbalanced, a little overly gleeful at such thoughts. But no, he, um, yeah, 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 the enemies are going to be made into a footstool for his feet. Not just underneath him. That's already happened. But humiliated and made utterly subservient. And we're, we're waiting for that. That's yet to come. All right, verse 14, for by a... And in terms of literature, that ties back into the 
remember the fallen angels and remember his the long early uh, in the first chapter the comparison between Christ and the good angels the angels period and all of that so that that's kind of a line hearkening back to that theology all right verse 14 for by a single offering he has perfected there's that language again you know made consummate made perfect made whole or telos uh, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I love the, I love the kind of the present tense ongoing action. Like we are actively being sanctified, being made holy by him. But that's, that is, that sounds like this is a sure thing that I can, I can be uh, at peace with God about his taking care of these rascally children that I created. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think there is great peace and comfort here that God, that in Christ, God has already taken away their sins. And God is declaring this unto them. And that message goes forth, and today is the day of salvation. Until Christ says that that day is over, there's hope. And there's light, and there's reason to pray and pursue and all the rest. Yeah. We can never be cavalier about that. No. No, not in the least. I think the other thing we just have to remember is as much as we love other people, God loves them more. As much as we might love them truly, God loves them more truly, more rightly, in a better ordered way. As much as we might be gracious, God is infinitely more gracious. As much as we might be wise, God is infinitely more wise. We have to, we have to, you know, as we progress through this life, we just have to realize that He's far more trustworthy than we are. I mean, if you've made enough mistakes in your life, you'll learn that you're not very trustworthy. You'll kind of give up on yourself with that. And that's like a great idol that falls and smashes. You know, fantastic. I can trust God more than I trust myself. I can be at peace knowing His judgment is absolutely right, where even when I thought mine is right, it turns out not to be. So, yeah, this is, this is part of knowing who God is and the loving glory of our Father who gives His Son as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. All sins. Past, present, and future. Okay, so by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, now we're quoting Jeremiah 31 again, where we began, this, back in chapter 8, this is the covenant, again, the new covenant, that I will make with them. So now it's describing the present tense reality. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Now, contrast that with what Christ... <laughs> what Christ has said, according to the author of Hebrews, um, back in verse 5, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So, the difference between the Old Testament and the New is in Christ you actually find someone who can and will do the will of God, and he fulfills that will, again, in perfection through the sacrifice of his body. But because he has done this, now he pours out his Holy Spirit, and what does the Holy Spirit do? Puts his laws within our hearts and writes them on our minds that we might, what? Have that same will within us. 
St. Paul says it differently, but the same exact thing, that it is God who is at work in us both to will and to do. You see? So this is the promise of regeneration, and it's part and parcel of the New Testament. Um, those, those sacrifices have been set aside. The sacrifice of Christ remains. His will to love God and man remains. And now he is pouring out on it, uh, excuse me, pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us that we in heart and mind might be made into, be made one with that will. Our will be his will and his will be the Father's will. Does that make sense? So, that's the first part. Not to lose the forest for the rhetorical trees here. Um, so once more from the top, verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after whose days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. So you see then the wedding of the will and sacrifice of Christ, and because he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, that sacrifice is the complete removal of our sins, and his will becomes our will, written anew into our hearts and minds. So it is infinitely superior. We are being joined to Christ, the everlasting sacrifice, Christ, the embodiment of the will of God. That Why would you ever go back to Judaism? Why would you ever go back to where you don't have any of that? You've just got these sacrifices that have to just keep getting repeated. That's his rhetorical punch and point to these people and to us. So I love this line too, because this is kind of a fun line to, to consider it more broadly, where there is forgiveness of these, of what? Sins and lawless deeds. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That would preclude the Lord's Supper from being an offering for sin. That would preclude the sacrifice of the Mass of Roman Catholicism. That would almost make the sacrifice of the Mass an abomination because it rejects then tacitly, if not explicitly, that the forgiveness of sins is completed once and for all by Christ Jesus. And there is no longer any sacrifice. The argument of the Roman Catholics is that now there's a new sacrifice to be made and that that sacrifice is holy and that sacrifice is the Mass. That's not true. No. The new sacrifice to be made that is now holy and acceptable is the sacrifice of our bodies, that we be living sacrifices. So this is this was the delightful part. We meditated on this, I think, uh, last week in the other class. But in Romans 12, um, our royal priesthood is described as um, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And of course, we had fun with the idea of a living sacrifice, that paradoxical thing. Um, but look what it is in this context again. Offering our what? Bodies. What is, what is Psalm 40? What does uh, Hebrews 10.5 say? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So Paul's, I mean, that's why uh, it's these kinds of arguments where people just go, well, Paul's saying the same thing. This probably is Paul. You don't have to go there. It's just that Paul was thinking the same thing, to be sure. He's thinking along the same lines.
All right, so we don't need the sacrifice of the Mass. There is no sacrifice of the Mass. It's the once and for all sacrifice of Christ given to us, his body given, his blood shed, that we might eat and drink and be forgiven. It's no longer any offering for sin, but there are all kinds of offerings where we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And those sacrifices, by the way, another funny point on that verse, those sacrifices aren't made to our neighbors. <laughs> that would make one of our neighbors. Gods. Yeah, and, and false gods at that. It'd be a new paganism. We don't offer our bodies as sacrifices to our neighbors. We ought to offer our body as living sacrifices to God, and that happens to benefit our neighbor. All right. Those of you who are in the other class will probably have a greater appreciation for all that. It's the same theme we've been talking about. Okay. Let's take a, let's take a pause there and just see. Everything okay so far? All right. So, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have, and I love this, have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to give you two reads on this. Um, the first read, as far as I can tell, is that of the Lutheran Study Bible. And it kind of goes like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, where previously were holy places discussed? At the end of chapter 9. And holy places there were heavenly. They were the heavenly reality. So then what the author of Hebrews is saying here then, if you kind of like follow this train of thought, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to go to heaven by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, etc., etc., etc. Basically, since we're going to heaven, let us acknowledge all these blessings and benefits that Christ has given us even in the here and now. Okay? I've got nothing wrong with that. I've got no problem with that. That's fine. Uh, Kleinig, I, from what I can tell, doesn't exactly take it that way and kind of would prefer this reading, and I think it's worth entertaining. I, I actually think it's more convincing. Let me, let me try to do this. Okay? So, more slowly now. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. What two things do you have there? The blood of Jesus and the flesh of Jesus. Boy, I wonder if you, as a first century Christian, might start to think along the lines of the Lord's Supper. Because I do. As a 21st century Christian, I almost can't help but reflect on if this is part of the reality. So that, you know, again, you just have this kind of now and not yet tension, this sense of like we are entering the holy places, being cleansed by the blood of Christ, and then passing through the veil that is his body. In what sense? Well, by consuming his body, you're passing through the veil into the holiest of holies. You're becoming partakers of the divine nature. You're entering into koinonia and communion with God. That really is what holy communion is. So you already are in heaven. Well, what is the essence of heaven? Heaven isn't a destination. You don't need Elon Musk to build you a rocket to get you to heaven. Heaven is the, the beautiful, unadulterated, reconciled presence of God. 
And that's precisely what's given us in the Lord's Supper. So my, for my money, that's what I think that the author of Hebrews is doing. I think he's taking the heavenly imagery that he's in, that he's, um, that's very clearly in place at the end of chapter nine. And now I think he's playing with it so that it becomes present tense in the Lord's Supper. So that yes, it's, it, there's a now and a not yet, but his point is right now, don't turn your back on this. And I think that that's going to become even clearer just in terms of the rhetorical emphasis he's going to make in the verses to come. So those are two different reads, and you can do with it what you will. But for my money, it's more convincing that there are, at bare minimum, sacramental allusions going on here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Um, so the curtain of the holiest of holies, right? Now it's his flesh. Somehow you pass through his flesh. How do you do that? I think by partaking of it in the Lord's Supper. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, which I love because even though the church has pastors, Christ is the true pastor. And even though the church has priests, Christ is the true priest. And you glimpse it here. We have a great high priest over the house of God. And that sure seems to be, I mean, it's a heavenly reality, but also an earthly reality. It's almost as if heaven and earth are wed in one. There's not, it's not a distinction that I see here that the house of God is a heavenly reality only. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Draw near to what? Draw near to heaven? I don't draw near to the sacrament. It just makes a lot more sense to me. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. What do you get sprinkled with that makes you clean in the Old Testament? Blood. Yeah, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now we've got, we've got two delightful things going on here. We see that we are sprinkled clean by blood and washed by water. What are those two things? The Lord's Supper and Baptism. That's why I think this whole section is really, properly speaking, sacramental. Um, but yeah, this is the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Uh, I mean, unequivocally. You can't, I don't really think you can make a good argument against it here in these verses. Um, now, this is kind of a beautiful thing, too. Let me grab my thought. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts, oh yeah, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, the argument that, the, the thing that was left hanging in the preceding argument was that the Old Testament and its sacrifices and its rites and rituals can cleanse the body or the flesh, but not the conscience. Christ's blood can clean the conscience. And you're kind of going, in the back of your mind, you're kind of going, well, shouldn't it be both? Ah, now you have it. The new covenant is the sprinkling clean, the blood that cleanses us from an evil conscience, and now our bodies or our flesh washed with pure water. That pure water is baptismal water. So does not the new covenant cleanse both conscience and body? And here it's definitively answered, yes. So if you're really like paying attention to his rhetoric and you're kind of critical of this point, he's now wrapped it up. It's great. 
fantastic. Let us hold fast, and this is the point, you know, this is the point. His people are in danger of not holding fast. So all of this beautiful theology that he's done, and like, hey, look what's setting right in front of you. You pass through the veil of his flesh, you're cleansed by his blood, your body's washed with pure water, your conscience is sprinkled with his blood. Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, that is the coming of the Lord Jesus, draw near. So, um, yeah, that's how we, we want to occupy ourselves. Given such great gifts by Christ, we want to hold fast to the confession without wavering. We want to stir up one another to love and good works. And we want to not neglect meeting together. Don't skip church. As is the habit of some. First century problem already. Continues to be a problem. But rather encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Which I love too because all the more as you see, as you see the world ending, which is, you know, what we all think we're seeing, uh, then what are we supposed to be doing? Yeah, we're supposed to, we're supposed to be, um, encouraging one another. Not, not going, oh, woe is me, woe is us. We're supposed to be like, do you see? It looks like Jesus could come at any time. Now, maybe it'll be another thousand years or two thousand or ten thousand. Who knows? He's the Lord, not us. But it sure looks like He's coming. So, let's live as if He could come tomorrow. Let's live as if He could come today. Let's encourage one another and inspire one another, uh, you know, to be champions in the faith. And that's what's coming. Verse 11, the, the Hall of Bay. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Okay, I saw a hand trying to get up in the back, and we're almost out of time, so uh, you can make it a good addition, Vicar. All depends upon you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing I just wanted to point out that in, um, in the Greek text, it says, um, so not neglecting to meet together as is the ethos of some. Mm, what do you is, make of that? I, I was actually going to ask you what, <laughs> what you make of that, because, I mean, you know, habitus in, in Latin as kind of like a way of being mm-hmm. is kind of, um, I'm wondering if that's sort of a, the Latin equivalent of the Greek here, or what? what you that's how I that. take it. Yeah, I don't think that this is like you miss church incidentally. You know, this is the way of some, as is the nature or way or ethos or attitude of some, yeah. And I think it's in, I think it's indicative of a falling away already, just not a naked apostasy, just not a complete, oh yeah, now I'm going to temple, uh, right? So I, yeah. And very interesting because he drops the pastoral hammer, so to speak, in the next section, which we'll get to next week. Is he, is he referring to those who have ceased going to church that they've already committed a mini apostasy? Maybe so. That enters the domain of the conversation. Um, we ought to consider that, but we ought to consider other things and other alternatives as well. Uh, but what we're coming up against is, you know, sometimes thought to be yet another challenging section in Hebrews, the end of, uh, 10. I don't mean to sound like 
arrogant or snide. I just don't, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think once you understand what his rhetoric is and what he's trying to do, I think it just makes sense. I, I would probably try to say the same thing. Um, but we'll save that for next week. All right, the Lord be with you.